okay. Still here. <laughs> Quite a range of experience, huh? In just one day. From the highs to the lows to the boredom, from the sleepiness to the restlessness to the doubt, feeling like you're going to jump out of your skin or clobber someone. <laughs> and then you find yourself sitting in front of the fire and everything's fine. <laughs> and it's like, why was I so stressed out? <laughs> There's a Chinese saying, if you want to understand the nature of water, watch the waves. So this is part of what we're doing here, is watching the waves, watching them come and watching them go until we understand at a very deep level the nature of our minds and hearts. What is it that Buddhas know? Everything that arises ceases. All that is born ends just that much. But knowing that deeply and completely, knowing it in our core, deep in our bones, changes something. This is a, an anonymous poem I thought you might appreciate. If you can start the day without caffeine or pep pills, if you can be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time. If you can overlook when people take things out on you, when through no fault of your own something goes wrong. If you can take criticism and blame without resentment. If you can face the world without lies or deceit. If you can conquer tension without medical help. If you can relax without liquor, if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, if you can do all of these things, then you are probably the family dog. <laughs> so what it is to be human, what it is to be human. There's a collection of... Uh, poems in one of the early early texts uh, from the nuns around and after the time of the Buddha. Very moving stories. I don't have it with me, so I'll have to paraphrase, but one of the poems is this nun, uh, they're the enlightenment poems, so it's very short verses. This one nun saying, you know, 25 years without a moment of peace. turning down the lamp at night 
my mind stopped. This is her enlightenment verse. 25 years in robes practicing as a nun, not a moment's peace. But staying with it, wholeheartedly practicing, and then in one moment, turning out the light, turning down the lamp. As the light went out, her mind stopped. Sometimes this practice can feel like we're trying to put up a tent in a hurricane. (laughs) You get one corner down and then the other one goes up. uh, One of the great gifts, though, one of the beautiful things about this practice is that there's a path and that many, many others have walked this path before us. And because so many people have walked it, there are certain Uh, certain maps, certain trail signs that we can rely on, that we can depend on to help guide us. So if you asked somebody how to get to the ocean and they said, oh, you're in a foreign land and how, how do I get to the ocean? I hear there's this beautiful ocean with a wide beach and warm water where I can swim and be be warm in the sun. And they said, yeah, just uh, go in the direction of the rising sun and in three days' time, you'll reach the ocean. And so you start walking, and after one day, you come to this huge mountain range with snow on top. You might be kind of confused and say, did they give me the wrong directions? Am I going in the wrong way? I thought I was going to the ocean. But if that person told you, if they said, walk in the direction of the rising sun for three days, and after the first day, you'll come to a great range of mountains go over that range of mountains, and on the other side you'll find the ocean. Then you wouldn't be confused, would you? You would know when you came to the mountains that you were going in the right direction, because you had a map with certain guideposts. So one of the maps that the Buddha offered is called the Five Hindrances. And these are five different uh, energies or uh, forces in the mind that can block us, that get in the way of progressing on the path. But even as they get in the way, they're also part of the path when we know how to relate to them. They're to be expected. So this is what I'd like to talk about tonight, is what these five hindrances are and how we can learn to handle them, how we can learn to practice with them Instead of, uh, instead of getting to that range of mountains and going, uh-oh, and then turning around, going in the other direction. So much of the difficulty that we experience in the practice, but also in life, is based on our expectations. So one of the things that came up a lot in the, in the groups today, in the conversations I had with folks, was... You know, everything was going fine, or sometimes it's going great, and then it all goes to shit, right? And we think, I've done something wrong, or it's not working, or maybe I should leave, you know? Because we have an expectation that it should be different. This shouldn't be happening. Just look and see, did you have that thought at all today? This shouldn't be happening, right? Anytime you're suffering, anytime you're struggling, 
whether it's here on retreat or in your life, look and see if there isn't an expectation about how things should be. Byron Katie is famous for saying, anytime you argue with reality, you lose, but only 100% of the time. (laughs) So these five hindrances, I want to say what they are, and then I'll talk about each one, how it shows up, and how we can work with it. So five can sometimes be a little bit a long list to remember. So you can even simplify it down to three. There are two pairs and then a fifth. So the first pair is basically greed and hatred. It's wanting pleasant things, craving for pleasant things, and not wanting unpleasant things. Two sides of the same coin. Okay, so these are the first two hindrances. So just consider, did you spend any time today wanting something? Did you spend any time today not wanting something and suffering over it? Okay? That means you're practicing. <laughs> it means hindrances are arising. It's fine. It's not a problem. It's just a hindrance. It's just like coming out range of mountains. Oh, here we go. So the next pair is about energy. And we've talked about the sum already today. Sleepiness, not enough energy. Restlessness, too much energy. These are the next two hindrances. And just check, did you feel sleepy at all today? Find yourself doing this one in the sitting. Did you feel restless at all today? You know, feeling convinced that my clock must have broken. His watch must have stopped. I'm sure it's been 45 minutes. Okay. And then the fifth, doubt. Am I doing it right? What is this practice anyway? These people are crazy. How did I end up here? What have I gotten myself into again? So these five, these, these, if we don't see them, when we don't see the hindrances, they, they block wisdom. They're like, they're described as like heavy curtains that prevent us from seeing. It's said that they overwhelm awareness and weaken wisdom. And they can cause a lot of harm in ourselves, just struggling and getting tossed around by them, or also to the people around us in our lives. So these forces aren't only on retreat, craving and aversion and uh, laziness, you know, feeling not energy or running around like a maniac, restless and anxious and worrying, or spinning in doubt. So these forces uh, really complicate things and wear us out in our life if we don't know how to be aware of them and relate to them wisely. And when they're in check, when they're at bay, even temporarily, ah, what a relief. What a relief when the mind isn't being pushed and pulled by craving and wanting and hating and fearing. What a relief when we're not on this roller coaster of restlessness and worry and anxiety and sleepiness and heaviness or spinning and doubt when we can just be here 
The mind is clear and stable and balanced. And I'm guessing that each one of you has had at least a moment, if not many moments, like that today where the clouds part temporarily, even if it's just for like a moment. And the mind is clear and everything's just like, oh, wait, it's okay. So the first of these hindrances is craving. And this, this craving plays a huge role in the Buddha's teachings. Uh, greed, specifically greed and wanting for pleasant sense experience. It's our habitual response to pleasure. It's our habitual response to pleasure, to want it, to want more of it. So this can show up in a lot of different ways. It can show up as just kind of like a mild yearning or a little yen for something. Oh, I just have a little something to eat, or it might be nice to have a cup of tea. To full-blown greed or lust, physical lust or planning the next gadget or the next trip or the mind's just totally obsessed with wanting something. And on retreat, when all of our normal uh, outlets and distractions are unavailable, things can get a little bit wacky in terms of wanting stuff, you know, wanting to get your tea just right or finding other ways of uh, comforting and soothing ourselves, of fixating on checking the board how many times a day you know, to read the board or reading the back of a tube of toothpaste or something because there's no books. So the mind just seeking something to fill it up. It's that voice in the back of the mind that says, I'd like to be a little bit more comfortable. Maybe I need a blanket. No, I, need, I, sh I should go take a shower. That's what I need to do. No, I'll take a walk. That'll be good. I'll take a walk. Then I'll feel better. Maybe a nap would be better. Yeah, after I take a walk, then I'll take a nap. And then, and then I'll... You know what I'm talking about? So this is craving. It's never-ending. It's always looking for something else to feel good. In the texts, the Buddha says, there's no river like the river of craving. So this can also show up as homesickness, longing for the familiarity and the comfort of people or places that we spend time with, or it can show up as just checking out, just fantasizing. I spent the whole Seshin Zen retreat in Japan earlier in my practice, five days. It was a grueling retreat up at 3.30 in the morning, 50-minute sitting periods followed by five minutes of walking, followed by 50 minutes of sitting, no moving. It was intense. So it was just a lot of pain, and I hadn't really... I had a lot of endurance. I could sit through it, but my mind wasn't balanced, really. So I would just I just checked out. I just fantasized about my girlfriend, seeing my girlfriend <laughs> for like five days. <laughs> then I would get back to the States and see her. And then, the end of the five days, I learned something. Because the retreat was over and I'd wasted five days. Oh, where did that go? In the, in the attempt to get away from the pain, reaching for pleasure. 
And when we don't know how to be with unpleasant sensations, one of the only options we have is to replace it with something pleasant. This is from a uh, comic artist named Ashley Brilliant. He has, a, he has a, a little postcard comic that says, I've given up my search for truth and now am looking for a good fantasy. <laughs> so maybe you notice the mind doing that sometimes, just, just looking for something nice to think about. When I get home, it'll be so nice, and I'll take a bath, and I'll put on my slippers, which I should have brought, and <laughs> craving. It's always important to acknowledge that this word craving, I mentioned it the, the other night, tanha, thirst, this is distinct from other forms of desire which are healthy. Uh, the word chanda in the, in the Pali uh, Buddhist psychology also means desire and it's a neutral factor. It, it doesn't have any ethical valence to it. So the kind of desire that we have to practice meditation and develop spiritually is a very, very healthy, wholesome desire. The desire to serve or to help, these are, these are very beautiful, positive energies. So it's not that there's this blanket thing, wanting anything is a problem, but it's this particular kind of wanting that's compulsive, obsessive, never-ending, of wanting sense pleasure. Because what is it? Have you ever really studied it? Physical pleasure, sense pleasure. It's a very, very uh, clear pattern. First, there's anticipation. Ooh, I'm going to get something good. This is going to be good. All right, here it comes. Here it comes. Oh, it's going to be so good. And then what? Ah, oh, it's so nice. There's that, there's that hit. There's this hit of pleasure. And then what happens? Then it fades. And then it's gone. And then we need another one. So craving, it's like trying to fill a bucket with a hole in it. Or it's like a whirlpool that sucks us down into it. It's like being in debt and never being able to pay off the loan. The, because the more, the more you borrow, the more you owe. So how do we handle this force in meditation? All these different ways that craving shows up. How do we handle it? So with, with a lot of these hindrances, um, the first couple of steps are the same. The first thing is just to recognize it. That's always the first step, just to be aware of it. Oh, this is craving. That's, that's what's happening. It's not a problem. It's just a hindrance. It's just like getting to that range of mountains. It's like, oh, yeah, right, there's a hindrance. Okay, no problem. So the recognition, naming it can also be very helpful. Just that cognitive act of putting a label on a hindrance craving, craving. That's what this is. In that act of labeling, of naming an experience, we're no longer completely defined by it. Because if you can be aware of it, if you can, if you can name it, there's a relationship. 
soon as you can name it, there's at least some distance, some perspective from it. Part of recognizing craving is also getting a sense of how it feels in the body and the mind. It doesn't always show up so clearly. But in the body, there's often a sense of like a buzzing or a little bit of a, um, a, a, a rush or a tingle, a leaning forward, an inching forward because we're moving towards something, wanting to get something. In the mind, there's often this sense of like a glow. One of the Tibetan texts talks about, it says, craving puts feathers on the object. It paints it with pretty colors. It makes it look attractive. So that sense of this glow of, of what it will give us. Also in the mind, it can show up as stories that, pretty, that have the, the narrative, the basic narrative, if only. If only that person would stop shifting in their chair. If only the cook would be quieter. If only this back pain would go away. If only that reaching for something better or different, then I'll be happy, I'll be able to meditate, everything will be fine, and so forth. So that's a signal, it's a little flag. Oh, craving. If you notice the mind uh, fixating on something like that. So recognizing it, naming it. With every hindrance when it arises, we have a choice. The choice to try to let it go and just come back to the anchor. Completely valid response. And sometimes that's enough. You see it, oh, craving. In the, in the awareness of it, sometimes that's enough to unhook and you can just come back to feeling the breath or being with your momentary the rest of your momentary experience. The other option is to explore it, to be mindful of the craving. And this is really where we start to learn the art of practice and also where we begin to touch the potential for freedom that this practice holds with any of these hindrances, with any difficult mind states. So our tendency with moods and emotions and mental states, such as the hindrances and other ones, is to do one of two things. We either get entangled and enmeshed and involved in them, right? We become the one who is craving and we want that thing. Or if it's anxiety or worry, we become the one who is worried and we start worrying about that thing. We, we get consumed by it. That's one end of the extreme. The other end of the extreme is the opposite. We push it away. Stop craving. Stop it. That's a hindrance. Don't do that. Right? Why am I always craving? I have to stop craving. I need to let go of this craving. Okay, I'm not going to crave. <sighs> not going to crave. Don't crave. Okay, just feel the breath. 
and we're, and, we're, and we're resisting, tightening, pushing away, or we get angry at it, or we get angry at ourselves. So these two extremes, getting involved in it, picking it up, or pushing it away, both of them feed the energy. Resisting it feeds it because it gives it something to push against, and getting involved with it obviously feeds it. So the path of practice is to stay in the middle, is to find this place of balance, of neither pushing it away nor getting entangled with it. And there to just observe it, to try to bring mindfulness to it. So to recognize it, to accept it. This is the truth. In this moment, this is the truth of one's experience. There's craving. Okay. Let's see if I can get interested in this. What does craving feel like? How does it feel in my body? What does it feel like to want something I don't have? It's kind of unpleasant. It's kind of like something missing inside this emptiness or this lack. This is an unpleasant experience, craving. Being mindful of it, really feeling it, allowing ourselves to know it directly, to get intimate with it, we begin to understand it. When we see it clearly and understand it, it no longer needs to define us. It's just craving. It's just an energy. It comes into being, it lasts for a little bit, and then it disappears. Is there anything that you craved today that didn't change? That you were craving all day long, nonstop? No, it comes and it goes. Everything does that. So being mindful of it, getting interested in it, feeling it in the body, noticing the thoughts. Is there a story? What thoughts are feeding it? Look for the pleasantness. If there's wanting, there's something pleasant that we're wanting. There's something we're trying to go for. Try to see what is the pleasure that the mind is seeking. Where's the hook? Where am I getting hooked? When we can see it clearly and stay with it, eventually the mind will just put it down because it's uncomfortable, it's unpleasant to keep craving. When we let go of craving, when the mind puts it down, it's the very sense of lack, the very sense of being dissatisfied that we're letting go of. Do you see that? Craving, by definition, means wanting something we don't have. When we let go of craving, we let go of dissatisfaction. It happens slowly. It doesn't happen just all at once. It's, sometimes it takes time. Be patient with it. But when you can put it down, it's like paying off that debt. It's like being free from debt. So the opposite of craving is what's called aversion in the Buddhist teachings. Anger or ill will. It's the habitual reactive response to unpleasant to either get rid of the unpleasant thing or get away from it. So wanting to get rid of it 
the energy gets directed outwards. Ill will, anger, hatred, make it go away. Wanting to get away from it, the energy goes in the other direction. Usually fear, we pull away from it. And so again, there's a whole range of experiences that can show up as aversion from just mild irritation or frustration to anger to full-blown rage. And, you know, again, on retreat, it's, uh, if you've never sat a retreat before, it can be a little bit disturbing <laughs> to, you know, like hear someone shuffling their shoes down the hallway and want to murder them. You're like, whoa, what's going on? You know, like I'm normally not a violent person. Is anyone, am I, is this just me? Okay, all right. <laughs> there was kind of this like silence. Uh oh. So, what's happening is that you're much more sensitive than you think you are, probably. Maybe some of you do know how sensitive you are, but as you settle into the silence, it's not only the beautiful things that we notice more the light, the smell in the air, the beautiful leaf falling. But as the mind quiets a little bit and opens some, we start to feel more uh, acutely this deep-rooted patterning that's running all of the time of latching onto and wanting pleasant things in a very greedy, self-centered way. This is hardwired in us. And we start to see the mind's reactivity to unpleasant things. These, these waves of hatred or aversion or anger or frustration can come up over things that ordinarily, you know, we would just kind of brush off because, we're, because, the, because the body and the mind are becoming more sensitive. So we're feeling things more deeply. And, and as we feel them, then we also feel the reaction. And this is important. This is part of the practice because it's in, in feeling those, uh, those reactions that we start to develop the capacity to be mindful, to stay present, and not be tossed around by it. We start to be able to see through the reactivity rather than uh, be overwhelmed or overcome by it. This hindrance of aversion also includes... Uh, turning it towards ourself, self-hatred, criticizing ourselves, beating ourselves up. It also includes projecting it out into the environment around us. So imagining that other people don't like us. Oh God, they all hate me. Oh, I'm making so much noise. You know, they, they must all hate me. I don't belong, I'm the only one. That's a kind of aversion that gets projected outwards and then turned back against ourselves. The basic storyline of this hindrance is that we could somehow eliminate pain or unpleasant sensations by getting angry at them, by trying to eliminate them or running away from them. And yeah, some unpleasant sensations, if you shift your posture or you move to a different place, they'll go away. But ultimately, it's not in our control, this 
changing play of pleasure and pain that we all experience. One of the analogies that's given for this hindrance is like, it's like being sick with the disease. The hindrance of aversion is likened to an illness or a disease. It's a lot easier to spot than craving because it feels awful. Craving has that kind of like, that glow and that tingle to it that we're going to get something good, but aversion and anger and hatred that just don't feel good. And again, just as with craving, it's important to point out that there is wholesome desire. In the same way, it's important to point out that anger serves a function. It's there to protect us. So there's a, a very important function for uh, the reaction against unpleasant. It's a self-protective mechanism that's designed to keep us safe. And there are circumstances in which that's really <coughs> appropriate. But most of the time, particularly on retreat, what we're seeing is just the mind's deep-rooted conditioning to lash out against unpleasant things. So when aversion arises, the first step is to try to recognize it, to try to see it. Oh, wait, this is aversion. No problem. It's just a hindrance. We've just come to that range of mountains. Okay, this is a signpost. This is part of the practice. Aversion, no problem. See if you can name it. Just put a label on it to get some distance. Put a frame around it. Oh, right. That's what this is. That's this experience. It's not me. It's not about me. It doesn't need to be any big deal. It's just, a, just an emotion. It's just an energy in the mind that comes into being, it lasts for a while, and then eventually it fades. Sometimes seeing it, when we really see a hindrance clearly, it's like it takes the wind out of it. I want to tell you two short stories about experiences I had with aversion. So one, I was in my early 20s. I, um, I was casting about in life, not sure what I was doing. I was sitting on a retreat at IMS. And uh, I just the mind just wouldn't settle. You know, just this way and that way, and just things just felt kind of up, you know, just everything was just kind of jangled, and I was, you know, feeling the breath some and noticing things, but just everything felt off. And then at a certain point during the middle of one sitting, kind of out of nowhere, what seemed to be out of nowhere, because I had been paying attention and practicing, so mindfulness was growing. At a certain point, there was just this recognition. Oh, I'm afraid. I was afraid. You know, of what am I going to do? Where am I going in life? I don't know. And that was scary. But I hadn't seen it. I hadn't really seen clearly that, that there was fear present even though it was driving things. 
And in that one moment of recognition, it was no longer a problem. There was still fear. But seeing it clearly, it was I could just relax. Just like, oh, right, this is just fear. Okay. And there was a deep kind of a tenderness that came with that recognition. Another time I was sitting on retreat listening to a, a Dharma teacher giving a talk, and I was being very judgmental. Really didn't like the talk, didn't like the way the teacher was explaining things, I didn't like their mannerisms, I didn't like the tone of their voice, it just kind of everything was grating on me, and I was just nitpicking about this and that, and they should do this differently. And then and then I was, you know, projecting my judgment onto the other teachers, being like, well, they're probably also thinking this person is totally messing this up and what's wrong with them, and I never should have invited them to teach. And and then again, at a certain point, I realized, well, they're not doing that. I'm doing that. This is, this is aversion. This is just the mind finding fault with someone else. And until I saw it clearly, I was just caught up in it, just feeding it, letting it run. So sometimes just seeing it really clearly is enough. When it's not, when we're still hooked, then we need to start to investigate. Okay, what is this aversion? How does it feel? How does it feel in the body? Where do I feel it? Is it tight? Is it burning? Is it hard? Do I feel it in the arms, in the hands, in the face? What are the thoughts? What are the stories that are running? How am I getting hooked? Where's the unpleasant object? There's something unpleasant that I'm reacting to. Where is it? Is it the sound? Is it an idea? They shouldn't be doing that? Don't they know? So look for that unpleasant experience that we might be missing and reacting to. It's also important to, uh, again, recognize that we might need to go slowly. If the aversion is really strong, feels overwhelming, then the mindfulness might look like just feeling it for a moment and then backing off, taking a break, coming back to the anchor, or looking around. Just touch in for a moment and then back away. In order to be mindful of something, we need, there needs to be some balance in the mind. If we lose balance, we can't be mindful. If we're just reacting, that's not mindfulness. So if you notice the mind spinning in reactivity, or being overwhelmed or flooded by something, back, back away. Take a break from that experience. Anchor with the breath, anchor with sound. Open your eyes, look around. Walk a little bit until you regain enough energy, enough interest, enough balance to then be mindful of it again. You can also take a lot of tenderness to be with aversion. It's a very painful experience, so having compassion for oneself. Or drawing on the resource of the beautiful surroundings here. 
the trees, the fields, the natural light, the fresh air, letting that sort of nourish us as a way of holding the aversion. So these are the first two, and these are very deep-rooted energies. And craving and aversion aren't uprooted in the, uh, one of the maps of the Buddhist progression. They're not uprooted until uh, the, the last stages of enlightenment. They're weakened at the second stage of enlightenment. And then they're not uprooted until, in, in varying levels until the third and fourth stage of enlightenment. So these are, these are strong energies, but we can practice with them. So the next pair is this imbalance in energy. Sleepiness, or the mental component of apathy, and restlessness, physical restlessness, and mental restlessness, which often shows up as worry or anxiety or planning. So again, the first step with these is just recognizing it, naming it. Oh, this is sleepiness. No problem, it's just a hindrance. I can be with this. I can practice with this. So we talked this morning some about some tips for working with sleepiness in the body, how to bring the energy up, open the eyes, stand up, pull the ears, take a deep in-breath, sit up straighter. If you need to, do some brisk walking, okay, to bring the energy up in the body. With the mental component of sleepiness, the, this kind of lethargy, I don't care, enough of this already, that quality. Uh, this is more subtle to work with. Sometimes we just really need a rest. You might need to honor that the heart is tired and to find a way to, to give the heart some rest. Do you need to back off? The practice is meant to be sustainable. So look and see, you know, are we trying too hard? Are we pushing or forcing or trying to make something happen? Remember that the amount of energy that's required is very light. It's just the amount of energy to hear a sound. And then we sustain that from moment to moment. Or sometimes it's that we're not actually giving enough energy. We can be stingy with our energy and like, I'm not going to, you know, I've got to meditate all day, so I'm not going to actually really try too much because then I'll get tired. And then, and then we collapse or sink because we're not actually putting anything in. So sometimes the antidote to sleepiness or apathy is counterintuitive, is to actually try to actually show up more, give more energy. You feel tired, but bring some vigor forth. And that can actually, it's like priming the pump a little. It can get things going. So I hope one of the things you're getting a sense of, particularly with, as I talk about restlessness and uh, sleepiness, is that there's no, there's no always, right? It depends on you and your system and what time of day it is and what's happening. You need to use your own wisdom and your own intuition to respond skillfully and learn how to balance these energies.
ultimately the sense of energy in our practice comes from the heart. It comes from our willingness to practice, our willingness to be wholehearted, to really give ourselves over to this path. Just one moment at a time, to just show up. Okay, I'm willing to show up. I'm willing to be here again and again. And so sometimes it's just about finding that willingness in whatever way you can. You know, reflect on the fact that you worked really hard to get here. And to, and to owe it to oneself to really give it your all. Having a clear purpose can be helpful with energy. We can stay up all night watching a movie or talking to friends, right? And start meditating and <laughs> I can go to sleep, I'm tired. Because right? there's no will. The mind doesn't want to meditate. When we really want to do something, there's energy. So remember why you came here. Remember what called you here whatever that was for you, and then draw on that as a source of energy and strength. Restlessness, worry, agitation. Oh, that's a hard one. That's so unpleasant sometimes. It can feel like we can just like, jump out of our skin. Yeah? <clears throat> Sometimes there's just too much energy in the body or too much energy in the mind. The mind can get really scattered or jumping, a lot of planning or worry. Restlessness is likened to being a slave in the texts. So we've lost our autonomy. There's another force that's directing our actions and our energies. And when restlessness abates, it's like being freed from slavery. We have uh, dominion over our own energy again. We can go where we want and choose what we want to do because we're not constantly being dragged around by the restless energy. So again, the first, first aid, first response, to just recognize it. So important just to be able to recognize, oh, this is restlessness. That's what's happening. This is the energy of restlessness. This is a hindrance, no problem. I can work with this. I can be mindful of this. There are different ways to work with restlessness. Sometimes widening our focus. So if it's restless energy in the body, sometimes like widening your focus, opening the eyes or listening to sounds. The analogy that's given is it's like having a wild bull or a cow and you give it a really big pasture and it just runs around and eventually it gets tired and settles down. So opening up really wide. Sometimes the opposite is actually helpful. And really just, just taking one breath or one sound, one moment and being really clear and, and sort of uh, narrowing the focus of attention, not in a tight way, but in a very precise way, can sometimes uh, balance a restless energy. When it's the thinking, 
restless thinking, worrying, planning, anxiety, Here there are different ways to work with it. Sometimes it's important to recognize what's driving the planning or the worry. To realize that there's some emotion underneath it, some fear, some uncertainty, and that the worry and the planning can be an attempt to control things. To think that if I can just plan this all out, or if I just worry about this enough, then I'll be safe, or those people will be safe, or I'll be able to make sure that things go the way I want them to. And until we actually start to contact the felt sense of that in our body, the thinking will just keep going, riding on that energy. It can be helpful to work with the breath. There's a lot of restlessness, just breathing out, long, slow, out-breath. One other uh, suggestion I'll offer, there, there are many others, but one other I'll offer is um, replacing the thoughts. So just consciously think about something else. Do some metta practice. Or think of the three refuges, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, or something else that holds meaning for you, a teacher, an ancestor. So we just, we just change the channel in the mind to withdraw the energy from the planning and the worrying. Hindrance talks are always really long because there are five of them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, doubt. This one's a killer. <coughs> In some ways, doubt is the most dangerous hindrance because it can stop us from practicing. Doubt can show up in a lot of ways. It can show up as doubting the teachers. Who is this guy? Where was he trained? Does he really know what he's talking about? Is this just some kind of cult? So doubting, doubting the teacher, or doubting others. You can doubt the practice itself. Why did I come here? Is this some kind of like affirmation? Am I trying to brainwash myself? Or we start doubting, doubting what we should be doing. We get confused about the teachings. Should I use sound as an anchor or a breath? Maybe I should use the sitting touching. Maybe I should do all three. No, 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 that's not going to work. And we just start questioning the, the instructions or the teachings. Or we can doubt ourselves. I can't do this. I'm a failure. I'm doing it wrong. Everyone else is, everyone else is fine, but not me. I'll never be able to do this. Or we think that our experience should be different. Something else should be happening. I should be more peaceful, I should be more calm. Or the opposite, everything's so calm. Why is this so easy? Shouldn't this be harder? I'm probably doing something wrong. I'm too calm, okay? So this is doubt. The trick of doubt, the trick that doubt plays on us is it sounds so reasonable. 
It, the saying is it comes masquerading as wisdom. It pretends to be so smart, trying to help us and tell us things, you know, the way it really is. So there's a difference between needing clarification on something. If you're confused about the instructions or you're not sure how to practice with something, that's important. And you want to ask a question to clarify it. And there's also a kind of doubt that's in the Zen traditions called great doubt, which is about the kind of a deep questioning of life. Who am I? What does it mean to be alive? Those questions take you deeply into oneself and into the present moment. The hindrance of doubt, what's called skeptical doubt, is this kind of never-ending spinning, this wavering, this kind of churning inside that just keeps going and looping and looping, believing that if you just keep thinking about it, you'll figure it out. But it never works. It never arrives at a conclusion. So one of the, one of the, so the first response, recognize it, right? The first response is always try to just recognize it, name it, doubt. My first teacher, Manindraji, used to say, Learn to see doubt as doubt. Very difficult to do. Just learn to recognize doubt, particularly if you're a doubting person. Some, many of us have like a hindrance of choice. It's like our go-to. Some of us it's aversion. Some of us it's craving. Sometimes it's doubt. You can be paralyzed by doubt. Learn to see doubt as doubt. Oh, wait, that's doubt. No, wait, is that doubt? No, no, it's probably something. I think I should ask a question about No, 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 wait. okay, no, it's doubt. And it comes back again. So learning to see doubt clearly. One of the best antidotes to doubt is bringing your attention to anything that's physical and tangible, present moment experience. In feeling a sensation in your hands, in that moment of sensation, there's no doubt. Hearing a sound in the moment of hearing, there's no doubt. Feeling a step in the moment of stepping. The mind is connected with something that's real in the moment that you can sense directly. There's no doubt. It's when the mind goes off into thinking about the past or the future or analyzing that the doubt comes up. So bring, the, bring your attention more deeply into the present moment. So the practice is one of continually learning how to handle these hindrances. The more we can include them in our practice, the, more, the stronger mindfulness we'll get. This is that wonderful analogy of, of, of compost, right? The lotus that grows out of the mud or the flower that grows out of the compost. So the hindrances are like the compost, they're fertilizer when we can include them in our practice, when we can say, oh, great, okay, this is a hindrance. Let's be mindful of this. Let's practice with it. It becomes fuel for the development of awareness and compassion and balance. 
and we're going to lose it. We're going to lose balance. We're not going to always be able to be mindful of them. We're going to get thrown off. We're going to get spun around. That's part of it. You learn to ride a bike by falling down. You learn to be balanced by losing balance. So there's no need to make a problem out of any of it. As soon as you recognize that you've lost balance, that you're spinning in a hindrance, boom. Awareness is back the moment you've already recognized it. So then you come back to balance. Whatever is happening in any moment is okay. I've said it before and I'll say it many times again. This practice isn't about the content of your experience. It's not about what's happening. It's about how we're relating to it. So anything that's happening, anything, everything that's happening, can be the cause for enlightenment, can be the moment that the mind opens and recognizes the truth that everything that arises passes, that everything that comes into being ceases. And our practice is to just keep showing up as wholeheartedly as possible one moment at a time. So I'll stop here for tonight and offer this for your reflection. I hope it's helpful. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.